0: Last week, we launched this series called Next Step Leadership, and my entire goal from last week was to convince you that a leadership series applies to you, because a lot of people think, well, look, you know, leadership, that's not me. I'm not a leader. I'm a follower. I'm a person who just kind of punches in, punches out, um, and that's me. So last week, what we did is we distilled down the definition of leadership to one word, and that word is influence because if you have influence over any other human being then you have the capacity to lead that person so if you're a mom you're a leader if you're a dad you're a leader if you're a colleague if you have any colleagues at work whoever listen to you you have the capacity and the ability to lead them you're a leader if you're in school and you have even one classmate who says oh I'll listen to what you say then you are a leader because you have influence so all of us have the capacity To lead. And in fact, all of us do lead. So the question is not whether you are a leader. The question is, what kind of leader are you? All right? So today I want to focus on an aspect of leadership that is not a popular aspect of leadership. It's not something that we like to talk about. It's not something um, that is fun or enjoyable for us to talk about as. You know, when we're thinking about leadership, we like to think about victory and success and moving forward. But there's an element of leadership that is absolutely essential if you're going to move forward in your leadership. And the element is failure. In fact, I'm going to call this series in this sermon in praise of failure because your willingness to fail. Is an essential component to your ability to lead. Unless you are willing to reach beyond your grasp. Unless you're willing to step up to the plate and take the risk of striking out, unless you're willing to to take a step further than you've ever taken before and know that it may not work out, then you can't lead. You cannot effectively lead. Failure is baked into leadership. All right. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to end up talking about one of the one of the greatest leaders in the Scripture, but one who failed, you know, miserably, epically, if that's what, epically. He failed terribly. Um, if I say to you, David, right, you know the, the biblical character, David, right? And if I say to you, David, you think of David and, right, man, everybody's got their, everybody went to Sunday school, got that. so yeah, so you think of David and Goliath, that story is the story of David's greatest victory. That story is the story where this little shepherd boy got five stones, faced off with this huge giant, you know, this Philistine warrior, got the sling, you know the story, bang, killed the giant, everybody rejoiced, right? But, what the, but the story I'm going to read to you today is a story that took place shortly after that, and it was one of David's greatest and most bitter failures. So let me read the passage, and then we'll come back and we'll unpack it. It's out of 1 Samuel 33, three through six. And it says, when David and his men reached their town, they found it destroyed by fire. And they found that their wives and sons and daughters had been taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each man was bitter in spirit because of the loss of his sons and his daughters. Bitter defeat, bitter failure. I wonder if anybody would admit with me today that you, like me, enjoy watching bloopers on YouTube. Is there anyone who can thank the Lord? We're going to have a life group where that's what we will do. We will watch bloopers. My wife... If I get some downtime, like in the evening, sometimes I will put on my earbuds and I'll open up the laptop and I'll go to YouTube and I'll just type in bloopers. And it could be news bloopers. It can be sports bloopers. It can be personal bloopers. It can be a guy, you know, going in for the dunk, hits the rim, ball bounces. Uh, That's a pretty popular one. Skateboards, great opportunities for bloopers. Guys coming off the rail, Biff, you know, wipe out. Um, I love the, the news reporters are the best. Like if the camera's rolling and they don't know it and they say things that they're not supposed to say on live television. And for me, like I'm, I'm sitting there watching tears rolling down my, I'm just dying laughing. You know, my wife just walks by, shakes her head. She's just like, I don't get it. But I, for whatever reason, watching people mess up, this is a deep, dark confession I make, um, (laughs) provides me with hours of entertainment. And I, I, that's probably a flaw. Um, but it's, 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 it's entertaining. But when I fail, when I mess up, when I biff, when I make a mistake, for some reason, the joy and the laughter and the mirth is not there. I get really upset when I fail, when something happens that I'm responsible for and it doesn't work. I could obsess over that for days. In fact, I have to stop myself and say, Hey man. Let's not obsess over that failure, right? Because you're going to spend the next week freaking out about something that only you care about. Um, I, I, I don't like it when I fail. And if I, you know, am a fairly good judge of character, I would guess that many of you genuinely don't like it. In fact, in fact sometimes the fear of failure is, feels greater than the failure itself. So, so some of you may even say, look, I would rather not try something than try something that I'm not sure that I can succeed at. Because I don't want to risk what I'm going to feel like if I blow it. And the reason this happens is psychologists have studied failure. There's a whole branch of psychology around failure. And here's what they found. Failure produces anxiety. It produces regret. It creates feelings of guilt. It creates uh, feelings of worry. It creates uh, feelings of confusion. It actually distorts your ability to assess your own strengths and gifts. So what they find is that somebody who can actually accomplish a task, if they fail at it once, they begin to reassess their abilities. And they they assess themselves as not being able to accomplish that task, even though objectively they can. It also distorts your ability to assess how hard something is objectively. So it it plays all of these mind tricks on you. Um, And when it gets a hold of you, what they have found is that it can even produce, and, and you probably know this from your own experience, a profound sense of shame. When you fail at something and you, you know, and it gets to the very core of you, it can produce a sense of shame. You can begin to fear that if you fail, you will be disgraced. You will be dishonored. You will be humiliated by your failure and what it does is, is it actually begins to reflect on your assessment of who you are you begin to think perhaps i am somehow defective in a way that other people are not perhaps that i'm i'm somehow deeply flawed in a way that other people are not i'm somehow inadequate in a way that other people are not because of the failure and so when we fail we experience Those feelings, and then we develop a fear or an anxiety around failing. So, what we do is we create this sort of complex system in our own life about how we deal with failure, our responses to failure. So, let me list a few of them, and they're in your notes. So, if you want to grab your notes, uh, you can write them in there um, and, and see if any of these apply to you. One response to failure is denial. We basically go, it didn't happen. I block it out. It's not real. It didn't happen. I told a, a story, you know, uh, some time ago. So I'm not going to repeat the whole story, but I'll just tell you very briefly a, a, a time where I failed, and um, it was it was humiliating, and it was, in fact, as I'm thinking about it right now, I can feel that my face is about to flush with you know humiliation and shame. But um, it wasn't that bad. But what happened is I was in college, and I saw a posting in my college that said. Um, there's a there's a position open for an aerobics instructor and for some reason in my mind i thought that i could do that i mean it was paying 11 dollars an hour which was you know that's 11 bucks an hour it was on campus i didn't have a car so i could just be there you know it was athletic i thought well i'll get some exercise and you know it was great so i'm not going to tell the whole story but no, now i now No, no, no. But I went, I went to the audition. Actually, what I did was I got a videotape of my mom's, uh, an aerobics tape, and I watched it for about three minutes before the audition. And I go, got it. Not a problem. And went to the audition and I got there. I should have known I was outclassed. Uh, Everybody else has like aerobics gear on, like the special spandex type things, you know, I had on like purple soccer shorts, some high-top Reeboks, you know, a baggy T-shirt, and I'm looking around. I should have just said, whoops, wrong room, sorry, I was looking for the soccer camp, you know, but but no, I plunged ahead, and um, long story short is they, the way the audition worked is they had all of the people that were auditioning, 20 people out there, and then they had this boombox playing this, you know, music, and then your job was to come up and lead the group in an aerobics set, all right? Well, I didn't know any aerobics moves at all. I, you know, I, the whole time I'm terrified. I'm watching everybody else do it. And then I hear my name called, music is playing, mu- you know. And they say, Brent Rome. And I go running up. And it's like, I'm, I, I blank. I mean, I have no idea what to do. I don't know any of the names. I don't, And so I start going, jumping jacks. <laughs> and, like, we do, like, probably f- four minutes of jumping jacks. And people are looking. I could see the look in their eyes. They're like, You are such an imposter. You are such a waste of our life. And then I'm like, and but they wouldn't stop me. They wouldn't, you know, and I'm like, Can you call someone else's name? So they they kept me up there and pretty soon I'm like, all right, jumping jacks are kinda and I'm like, all right, push ups and we go down. I mean it was it was it was humiliating. It was it was humiliating. And so what I did is I for a while I just I blocked it out. And there was a there was a Every once in a while, I'd walk across campus, and there was a girl that I didn't know and didn't recognize, and she would, I'd walk across campus, and, you know, and she would say, oh, hi, Brent. I'd be like, oh, hey, you know, I thought, well, I don't know, maybe I knew her, you know, from a class or something, I don't know. This happened for about a year, and finally, one day, she was at a coffee shop, she said, hi, Brent. I stopped her, I go, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't recognize you. You always say my name, and what's your name, how do I know you? And she's like, oh, yeah, I was in charge of the uh, auditions for the aerobics uh, audition, (laughs) And I, and I literally, like, it just froze. I was just like, <laughs> I just walked away. It's taken me 20 years to uh, deal with that failure. So sometimes we deny. Our second, our, our second response is def- defensiveness. We point to something else. We say, it wasn't me. It was something. It was X, Y, or Z. It wasn't my fault. I'd failed, but it wasn't me. It was some element outside of my control, right? And so that's the way we deal with our failure. Another way that we deal with it is through minimization. We say, okay, I failed, but really it wasn't that bad. It may have bad. It really wasn't that bad, and here's why. And you develop this elaborate scheme to explain why it really wasn't that bad. And the fourth one is concealment. The fourth one is concealment. We bury it. We hide it. We fail, and we say, look, I know it's there, but I don't want anybody else to know it's there. And so we cover our tracks, and we try to avoid letting anybody else find out that we failed. We conceal it. And all of these responses, you see, are based on fear. But the problem with these responses is that when we allow these responses to become our normal response to failure, we can never learn from it, we can never grow from it, and we can never move past it. In other words, when we allow fear, right, when we allow fear to take over, it destroys our ability to move forward. Fear of failure is worse than failure itself. Why? Because when fear prevails, the object of that fear is insured. Let me tell you what I mean by that. When I tried to teach my sons how to ride a bike, a few, you know, last year, tried to teach them how to ride a bike, what they were afraid of, they were afraid to ride a bike, and what they were afraid of is that they wouldn't be able to do it. And if that fear had prevailed such that they wouldn't try then they would have insured that they wouldn't that they weren't going to be able to ride the bike in fact the very thing that they feared is the thing that would have become insured if the fear had prevailed are you tracking with me so if you say i don't want to enter into that relationship because i'm afraid that relationship might go bust and i won't be in a relationship and i'll be lonely right and you prevent and that, and you allow that fear to prevent you from trying then in fact you are in the very state That you began to fear and that was that 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 was preventing you from trying in the first place. So the fear of failure, if it prevails, is actually greater than the failure itself. Uh, In this story, King David's story in Samuel 17, we we see in 17 that David is a hero. David comes out. He kills Goliath. The women of Israel begin to write songs about him. David, you know, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And they're singing songs about him. Uh, Abner, the king of the the, the general of the army, gets King David, introduces him to Saul. Saul takes him in like almost like his own son. Uh, Saul's real son, Jonathan, and, and David become best friends, the heir apparent of the kingdom. And David now are like best buddies. Saul gives one of his daughters to, to David to marry Michael, and, and David marries the princess. I mean, he has literally went from being like a shepherd boy out in the middle of a field throwing rocks, you know, at coyotes, to being the living in the palace. The scripture says that Saul didn't even let him go home. Saul kept him in the palace, you know, gave him everything he wanted. He was married to the princess. He, his best friend is Jonathan, the heir apparent. I mean, he just went from like obscurity to like the top. But then suddenly everything changed because Saul started to become jealous and Saul started to become worried about David's, uh, you know, strength and about David's popularity. And in this very strange passage, the King Saul is sitting there. David is in the palace. He's playing a harp. King Saul is sitting in his throne and he looks at David and scripture says he's got a spear in his hand and he's looking at David and he thinks, I'm going to pin him to the wall and he takes a javelin and he throws this javelin at David. David gets out of the way, um, but it was a pretty good signal that he wasn't welcome in the palace anymore. Suddenly, out of nowhere, David goes from living in the palace to to being a, a vagabond on the run. He had to leave. He had to take off. Saul instructed his soldiers. He said, I want you to kill David. I'm, he's no longer in my good graces. He just turned on a dime. And now David, who was in the palace, is out living in a cave, hiding, running, barely getting by, hiding from any semblance of his brothers or his family. And and finally, word gets out that David is living out in this sort of wilderness area. And a whole group of people come out to find him. And the scripture says this. It says, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around David and he became their commander. In other words, not only did David become a failure suddenly, but every failure in Israel decided to follow him. All the broke people, all the upset people, all the disgruntled people, all the malcontents in Israel said, hey, we'll go follow David. <laughs> he's a failure like us. They all go out. All the dropouts start following David. So they're all out in this, in this they build this little town, and they're, they're now, now they're just a group of losers living together in the wilderness. And David is thinking, what can I do? What, what can I, I can't get back into the good graces. And he's thinking, what should I do? Right. With this group of people. And he comes up with a plan that in retrospect, you go, that was ridiculous. I could have told you not to do that. He says, what we're going to do is we're going to go join the Philistine army, guys. Remember, David had just killed Goliath like a year earlier. uh, Goliath was a Philistine, you know, warrior. And now David is saying, hey, we're going to come join you guys. So he marches his little band, ragtag band of, you know, malcontents across the wilderness. And they go over to where the Philistines are. And the Philistines are getting ready to fight the Israelites, and David says, hey, Philistine generals, me and these other losers are coming to join you and be a part of your army, and we'll help you fight Israel. What do you think the Philistine said? Philistine said, you're crazy. What is your problem? Get away from us before we kill you. You're a crazy person. You just killed one of our guys, and now you want to come join us? So David, who had marched his guys, they had left their wives and their children and their livestock and everything back at their place. They had marched across the wilderness to join the Philistine army, and the Philistine army rejects them. So now David is dejectedly marching his guys back home. And, you know, they're grumbling. They're going, look, what are we doing? I mean, we're following David. We thought he was this great leader. He leads us to go join the Philistines, which wasn't a smart idea in the first place. Then they end up rejecting us, and now we're marching all the way back to our house. What is going on with this leader? And as they're marching back, suddenly they crest the top of a hill near their home, near their home. And in the distance, they can see rising up above the landscape, a black smoke curling in the air, curling up in the sky. Their hearts begin to pound They begin to pick up the pace. They crest the hill. They look down at the encampment where they had left their wives and their children and their livestock and all their property. And all they see is utter desolation and total destruction. The entire town had been burned to the ground. Their children, their wives are gone. Their livestock is gone. Everything is gone. They have no idea what happened to it, but it's utterly destroyed. So they had followed David out on this wild rabbit trail mission and on their way. And while they were gone, their home had been attacked. And David is now trying is bringing them back and they're looking across here and they're going, this is the worst leader we have ever had. We all of our lives, we've been failing. We've been and then we thought we were going to come out here and find this great leader. And he turns out to be a complete and total failure. And that's where it says in first Samuel. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. And then it says David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. They weren't just angry. They were like, we need to take him outside of the camp and kill him. He is such a failure and he's caused us to fail so badly that he doesn't deserve to live. We need to take him out and stone him. But there was something somehow deep in David's heart, that he understood. And I want each and every one of us to grasp this truth today. I want all of us to understand what David understood. Because here's what David understood. He understood that failure is an event. It's not a condition. Failure is an event. It is not a condition. There was a period in my life, in my late 20s, early 30s, where I really believed that my failures and my shortcomings and my mistakes would prevent me and preclude me from doing anything that if there was a God, that God would even want me to do. I actually reached that point where I just felt like I've messed up so many times. I've made so many mistakes. There's no way that if there is a God that he can get me back on track and that I can live out the life that he's called me to live. But failure is an event. It's not a condition. And here's why. Because the primary identity of the God that we serve is Redeemer. And God specializes in failures. In fact, to have a relationship with God means to have admitted and understood and recognized the extent of your failure. That's the only way that you can come to him. Here's what the proverb says about failure. It says, a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. Failure is an event. David knew that this failure, this series of failures uh, of his were not going to define him. And so rather than succumb to despair, rather than allow himself to enter into that empty, dark void of despondency and dejection. When all the men wanted to stone him, here's what David did. The scripture says David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. David went outside of the camp fell on his knees and said god i i am lost here i don't know what is going on i have blown it i was in the palace now i'm in a cave now we don't have our wives and children our property is gone everything has been decimated everything has been destroyed now the guys want to kill me and i need your help i need your strength i need I, I need you right he he suddenly in his heart realized that like i cannot do this on my own. Here's what David learned. He learned that a failure provides the opportunity for faith to flourish. That is when you will draw closest to God. Believe me, trust me on this one. You will draw closest to God after you recognize your own defeat, your own mistake, your own failure, and you turn to God and say, I need you. I need your help. If you failed on your job, if you failed in a relationship, if you failed at school, you failed in your family, you failed with your friends. Let me encourage you by saying that failure is not a definition of you. It's not the condition of who you are. It's an opportunity for you to grow in God. It's an opportunity for your faith to flourish. The Apostle Paul Talked about this extensively because he was filled at times with self doubt. He had made many, many mistakes. He had failed numerous times. And when he called out to God and said, Help me with my failures, Hell, I keep messing up. I need you to help me. Here's what God said to him God said, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. He said, My power is made perfect in your weakness. My power, God said, is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul said, that's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions. I delight in difficulties. And then he said this, for when I am weak, then I am strong. How Does that make sense? That makes sense because when you are weak and you bow your knee and you say, God, I need you in my life, suddenly the power of the Lord overtakes your own power and you become strong in him, much stronger than you could ever be in yourself. So your weakness is a door to your strength. Your failure is a door to your greatest success. God can come inside of you and work on you and transform you and build you. Failure is a prerequisite for personal growth. That's number four. It's a prerequisite for personal growth. It's only after you fail that you begin to see, where have I failed? Where are the mistakes that I've made? Where are the things that need to be changed? What needs to be transformed in me? The the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. Are we agreed on that? Can we agree on that? Okay. Any disagreements, just put it on your connection card and... Um, We'll email those um, to, who are we going to send those to? Kirk Williams at UCityFamilyChurch.com. Um, all right. Michael Jordan, bar none, best basketball player. Uh, nobody came close to his dominance. And this is how he describes failure. This is what he says. He says, I've missed over 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take that game-winning buzzer shot, and I've missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. He said, and that is why I succeed. What he's saying is I don't deny those failures. I don't minimize those failures. I don't conceal those failures. I don't turn away from those failures. What I do is I take those failures and I assess and I grow and I get better and I get stronger and I learn and I and I move forward through my failure. It's my failures. He said, that's why I succeed. Those failures were prerequisites to my success and to my leadership. David's bitter failure led him to the Lord, led him to hunker down and get with God and reassess and say, God, where are you taking me? How can I change? How can I grow? How can I become a better leader? And then this is what he does. He goes out to his men and he says, men, we are going to find whoever it is that destroyed our camp. We're going to find the people that destroyed our camp. We're going to find the people who took our wives and, and children. We're going to find the people who took our livestock, and we are going to go after them, and we're going to get it back. Now, that is not the voice of a man consumed by his failure. That's not the voice of a man who is, is, who is, is, is lingering in despondency and despair. That's a man who's being transformed and made better through his failure. That's a man whose faith is is beginning to flourish. And so the scripture says that he took the guys out and they began to pursue the Amalekites, the people who, took, uh, who had uh, come into their camp. And the scripture says that David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day. They, they went out to the wilderness, they found him, and David recovered everything they had taken. Nothing was missing. Young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken, David brought everything back. David could have given up. David could have defined himself by his failure. And we would have understood. We would have said, look, man, you have disqualified yourself from leadership. You led your men out on a goose chase, came back, everything's destroyed. Yeah, maybe you're not a leader. You should just go hide out somewhere and live out the rest of your days in solitude. But that's not what he did. He went out and he got everything back. If you really want to do something worthwhile with your life, If you want your life to count, if you want your life to be meaningful, if you want to make a difference in your life or in someone else's life, you've got to be willing to take the risk. You've got to be willing to get up when you fail. Turn to God. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to lead you, to transform you, to change you and put you back on the pursuit that he has for you. You've got to be willing to take the risk to fail. Your ability to lead is contingent upon your willingness to. To fail, your ability to lead is contingent upon your willingness to take the risk and to fail. Tomiko, you can come up, and I'm going to close with this. When we um, were about to launch U City Family Church at the end of 2011, there's a friend of mine. His name's Ross, and he had been part of a church plant that was similar to ours, uh, where you know you you, you uh, plant a church, a, a church that didn't exist before, and so. Uh, I talked to Ross. I called Ross. I said, hey, you know, I'd love to meet with you. I know you've been a part of a church plant before. He had told me that he had. I didn't know the details. And he said, um, I said, I'd like to talk with you about it and kind of learn, you know, from your experience. He said, sure. So we met for coffee right across the street at Meshuga. And I sit down with him and I said, so tell me a little bit about, you know, your experience when you guys launched the church. He said, well, he said, we had about I want to say about a two hundred thousand dollar budget to launch the church, and I thought, okay, that's about eight times bigger than ours, so that's 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 not encouraging, but that's okay. Uh, he said we had a sixteen foot tractor trailer that was filled with like top of the line equipment. I was like, okay, I've got a six inch, I mean a six foot trailer in my garage um, filled with second hand equipment. Okay, um, check. Um, he said, you know, we we put out I don't know, it was fifty thousand flyers in the community. We had a staff of like fifteen. I'm like, okay, I've got a staff of, I mean, if you count my children, then that's five. Um, So, you know, it was like he was just going down the line, right? And he said, you know, and we, we just, we had everything organized. We had everything put together. He said, and then we had launch Sunday. We had put out all the mailers. We had done all the work. We had done all the preparation. And he said, three people showed up for the first Sunday. He said, within a few weeks, we shut the doors. No, nobody came. Nobody came. Nobody came. He said the team went, went into total sort of like spiral downhill. The pastor and his wife divorced, split up. They had to liquidate all the equipment. I mean, it was, it was an utter, epic, complete, total failure by any standard. I mean, there's no way to look at it other than that was massive, huge failure. And I said, thanks, Ross. That's been very encouraging. Um, I mean, in that moment, I came home and I started talking to my wife and I was like, you know, there's a really good chance that this, that this, you know, I mean, I think God is calling us to do this. I, I believe God's calling me to do it. I, I've believed that for a long, long time. But there's a really good chance this thing is going to go bust. And my wife was just like, you know, just, this is God's thing. Don't don't try to make it your thing. This is God's thing. And if he doesn't want it to happen, it's not going to happen. If he wants it to happen, it's going to happen. And we we stepped out, and we took the risk. And I praise God. Every day that I wake up, I praise God. I say, God, thank you so much for the opportunity for me to be a part of this church. I've failed many times in my life. But there's this, there's this power in God to say, hey, I can still use you. I can I can pick you up and I can get you back on the path and I can take you where I want you to go and I can lead you and I don't care if you've messed up. I don't care how many failures you've had. All of my guys have had failures. All of the women in the Bible, all of the heroes of faith have blown it at some point. They're human beings, but God's a redeemer. And I want to say to you today, look, if there's something in your life that is holding you back, from stepping out and doing what God has called you to do, can you turn that over to God today? Can you just let God have that? Because He wants to redeem that, and He wants to restore that, and He wants to put you on the path that He built for you, that He made for you. He didn't make you sheerly as an accident. It's not like you're just here. He's got stuff for you to do. Don't be bound up by fear. Don't be tied up by fa- past failures. Here's what I'm going to give you to close, and these are your... Three applications. This is this is. Write this down on your on your connection card or in your bulletin. Here's, here's the applications for you. And you won't hear this. You really won't hear this anywhere else. Um, but I really think this is the right thing. It and here they are. Number one, fail fast. Fail fast. What that means is, if you blow it, just blow it and just move on. Don't hang around in your failure. Don't just don't just lounge around in despair and despondency. Oh my gosh, I messed up. I've totally blown it fail fast Just fail And then move on. All right We have that principle in our church like if we start something we start a life group Uh, I'll tell you I started a life group one I've told you this before I started a life group one semester. It was a total and complete bust Like two two guys came it was an outdoor thing there was hail and sleet and snow. It was it was ridiculous. Smoke in our eyes. I thought we would have a bonfire. I thought it was going to be so cool. And it was a complete failure. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, yeah, it was. I actually came once. Once. Um, but that's a principle in our church. If, if, it's a, if it's a fail, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't fill a need, just fine. No big deal. Right? We don't We don't get all worked up about that kind of stuff. Fail fast. Number two, fail strong. What do I mean by that? I mean... Don't halfway try something and fail so that you can then say, well, I wasn't really trying. If you're going to do something, do it. Go for it. Whatever your hand's trying to do, do it with all your might is unto the Lord. So that if, it, if you blow it, you can say, hey, man, I gave it everything I got. Fail strong. Don't fail halfway, weakly, maybe I could have done a little better. Fail strong. Blow it. If you're going to blow it, blow it massively. Just blow it. All right? You're in a safe place. And number three, fail effectively. And what I mean by that is assess it. Get feedback. What caused your failure? What caused you to blow it? What caused the failure? You know, what what was not done right? What was not well prepared? What didn't work? Fail effectively. Use every one of your failures to lead you to grow, to make you better, to get better at what God is calling you to do let's close today just let's all close our eyes together and bow our heads.